Welcome to Life Science Marketing Radio, the podcast where marketing leaders inside and outside the sciences share their creative ideas and practical approaches to increasing your marketing ROI. Here's your host, Chris Connor. Hey there, welcome back. I have another episode today in what I'm calling my unofficial mini-series for biotech startups. And today we're going to talk about message discipline when your company's just getting started. And, and I think it's going to be a really exciting topic. And if you stick around to the end of the episode, I'll give you a little update on how I'm doing with the goals I set in a podcast back in January. Before we get started, I want to share the offer I made at the end of my last episode. So not every company has the resources for an ongoing podcast series, but an audio interview with one or two of your scientists or executives could result in a valuable and shareable piece of content that you can host on your website. I'm now offering small batch handcrafted audio content that you can imagine was produced by a couple of bearded hipsters in a loft in Brooklyn not necessarily in a house in Walnut Creek. Or you can think of it as a press release brought to life by the magic of audio. The price for a 20 to 30 minute episode is $2,500. If you commit to an episode before June 1st, I'll include a co-branded transcript, a $300 value, and each episode will then live in a new podcast feed separate from this one, the value of which will grow over time as more stories and more amazing companies and technology are added. So you get to use it. I'll put it in a feed that will grow in value over time. Now let's dive into today's topic. Today, my guest is Bob Finkel. Bob is the founder and CEO of Fresh Blood Group, a consortium of senior level industry experts providing a full suite of business and creative solutions for healthcare brands. Bob, welcome to Life Science Marketing Radio. Thank you, Chris. It's good to be here. I'm excited about this one. So today we're talking about messaging for pre-approval biotech companies. So just to get everybody on the same page, let's describe the type of company we're talking about. Where are they in their evolution? So the, these companies are, by definition, they tend to be more entrepreneurial uh, and they're on the youthful side of the industry. These are the pioneers, uh, hopefully the pioneers of, of the industry in that they're trying to come to market with brand new ideas, brand new products, brand new technologies, and oftentimes disruptive technologies and platforms. So where they are in their life cycle is not quite in their infancy, but, but at that point in time, a, a juncture where they're trying to make the transition from a, a, an R&D company or a clinical stage company or clinical development company to making that leap to commercialization. And so you can imagine the, the transformation that needs to take place and, and the transition that that requires in terms of, of the people, the, the team they need to assemble, the expertise they need, and there's a lot of infrastructure adjustments that, that come along with, with making that transition. And from a marketing perspective, who's the audience these folks are trying to reach and, and what change in behavior of that audience are they trying to make happen? 
there's several different audiences they're trying to appeal to. Basically, they begin with the investment audience. So there's these companies are generally looking to raise funds or they have raised funds and they're kind of moving along that pathway. But the, the investment community or the stakeholders there are a primary audience that they're dealing with across the board usually. And at the same time as they're talking to the investment audience, they're also messaging to a lot of the thought leaders, the KOLs, sometimes they're referred to as, as that, but these sort of physician thought leaders who are going to help lend additional credibility to the company and, and their products and their concepts in an appropriate way. Again, we're talking sort of pre-market or market conditioning. So those are usually some of the, the initial audiences is to align the company's purpose and it, its positioning and its messaging with investors who need to hear certain things and with opinion leaders who need to hear similar or different things and they want more of the science side of the story. And then ultimately it, it, it moves across the adoption sequence curve, which would be who are going to be these early innovators and adopters of this new technology, this new product. And then of course, it, from there it, it becomes, it enters the market and then you're trying to, to bring these products to the rest of the rest of their audience which is going to be the prescribing audience of physicians and patients and carers and payers and so forth and so on. Right. And so let's talk about those key opinion leaders for a second, just in case some people aren't familiar with that sort mm -hmm. of idea. These are physicians and other scientists who are, obviously there's not an approved product. There's nothing to say about it, but they want to kind of lay the groundwork to say, we think this is promising in some way. Like this is a, a reasonable approach for a certain problem, right? Correct. Yes. The, the language is appropriate. It's above board. Um, it's guarded in, in that sense, since nobody's messaging on, on a, a product that is not actually FDA approved. Yet there's a lot more latitude for these opinion leaders to speak to the science and, and to share the evidence that they've been exposed to or what they've, if they've been an investigator uh, as well, they can speak to that fairly freely uh, without kind of crossing over that line to promoting directly the name of a product or drug in this case, or a medical device, for instance. So in that respect, the company's role working with those opinion leaders is to provide information, to help educate them about the, the characteristics of that product. We'll call it a product as opposed to a brand because the brand language usually happens after you've, you've come onto the market. But from a product perspective, the audience is interested in understanding the, the features and benefits that have been observed to this point. And so, they generally have to see that for themselves. This is a prove it to me audience and they're quick to get on board when they see something promising. I mean, everybody's interested uh, in knowing that there's new and better ways, hopefully, to, to tackle certain, certain diseases. So there's interest for sure with these audiences uh, of opinion leaders, but what they want to know is that they're making statements that, that are generally backed up or promising. And so uh, they do look to the data, they look to the studies, and they look to the credibility of the, of the company that's behind 
making those those products available. Exactly. So, and the key opinion leaders are important because they sort of have a built-in audience already. And you're trying to get the word out and have these folks say like, we're interested in this science. It's promising. You should pay attention. Yes. There's, I mean, there's tiers of, of opinion leaders. There's the, you know, in a sense, old school where you've got these thought leaders who everyone listens to on a, on a global level. Uh, and those are the people who just by speaking on behalf of a, of a particular product or, or brand lends a lot of credibility and, and drives a lot of interest in what's going on for that company or that product. So that, that of course, is uh, it's like gold for any company. But there's also regional thought leaders and regional opinion leaders. And, and in fact, in, in this age that we're in, there's consumer or patient thought leaders as well who uh, are so immersed in it, they oftentimes are, are almost as up to speed in some respects as these physicians because they're, they're constantly researching they, they may suffer from these conditions themselves, and they're very on top of it. So there's a lot of advocacy. So opinion leader, as a, as a concept, used to start in the, only in the professional world with physicians, and, and now it has transitioned, or it's, it's also embraced the consumer and the patient and the caregiver oftentimes. And I think that's important to, to note because influence uh, comes from very, very different directions these days. Yeah, I can imagine uh, those patient influencers. All right, so let's get back to messaging. What what problems do companies like this typically have with respect to messaging, and what kind of impact does that have if it's not taken care of? Yeah, so this is this is where uh, the discipline is is really required because if you can imagine everyone within the company who's in the C suite, the, the the CEO the chief financial officer, head of medical affairs, everyone is telling the story about the product to their various constituents. And you can imagine that although they know these products inside and out, there may not be cohesive or consistent use of messaging, whether it's how they prioritize messages or or ultimately how they position these products prior to, to entering the market. So you're talking about concepts like how to position this product in a uh, pre-FDA world so that you're maybe not actually positioning the product so much as you are positioning the science, or as I like to think, branding the science. Or you're trying to message uh, to that audience. And with messaging, you have to get to the point rather quickly and you want the language to be sharp. So this is where sometimes the, the, the idea of coming up with lexicon, like how are you really going to describe what you're talking about, uh, whether it's the company, their technology, their product, what lexicon are you using, what words are you choosing, what phrases are you, are you using, and are those consistent from not just meeting to meeting or presentation to presentation, but from person to person. And, and, and that, that needs to be orchestrated. It just doesn't happen organically. So that's where oftentimes companies will come in, partnered companies, whether they are consultants or agencies, they'll come in and help to facilitate that need for standardized lexicon because lexicon alignment is sort of a universal unmet need. That is something I've seen time and time again that we're approached and we're asked, listen, we know our product cold, we know our science cold, Yet, 
we seem to tell the story a little differently every time. Help us out here. What do we need to do? And so that oftentimes sparks the need for bringing the, the team together and, and laying out and kind of doing an inventory, for lack of a better term, an inventory of the language that you're using because the words do matter. And once we do that, then we can start to sift through it, understand whether those meanings have, for those those words, have a have a meaning that's not helpful, that may be conf- actually confusing, or doesn't move the ball forward. In which case, you have to start sorting the language into things that can be used, should be used, preferred use, and words that should be banned, essentially, or, or concepts or language that needs to be banned because it's not helpful. In fact, um, it may actually be damaging on some, on some level. So that's oftentimes a, a, a first place to start. And because that then ladders up into the messaging and the narrative. And uh, I think there's a, a collective sigh of relief that comes over the company when they feel like they've got things nailed down a little tighter. And so it whoever you're talking to is basically singing from the proverbial same song sheet. Nice. One of my early podcasts was with Steve Roeder from um, Acrolinks. I don't think he's with them anymore, but they had a software that he described. And I think this was more, you know, applicable to bigger companies, but you would put in your lexicon. And then if someone was writing a message or marketing materials and used a phrase that wasn't, you know, in the lexicon, but it was related, it would say, don't you want to use X? And it wasn't, didn't force you, but it made you think every time like, oh, maybe I should. That's that's great. It's kind of like put put a dollar in the jar, you know, you, you, you you cross the line. Well, well, you. I mean, the point you're making, which is great, is we can put anything into a into a, a, a guidelines um, a document of some sort. But it, it's really a it's compliance that counts at that point because you're trying to undo or break a habit. Because if if you're the CEO or if you're you know a head of commercial operations and you've been saying the story the same way, essentially for months or years you have to back out of that habit. You need to kind of recognize that there's really a need here. And so it all does come down to, to compliance, I guess I would call it, where everyone has to adhere to, to these new guidelines and rules that are being set internally. And whatever, whatever method is required, whether it's software or put a dollar in the jar, those are the things that I think ultimately bring a habit into into the everyday world where it, it matters and and people stop stop describing things a certain way and start using the language that they know is really beneficial to the product and ultimately to the brand right and you can imagine you're essentially playing a game of telephone and if you're not starting with a single message to begin with how how bad it gets down the line so yeah well, it's also complicated because, you know, it's one thing to get your internal team aligned on that. But keep in mind, as we as we spoke about earlier, you've got opinion leaders who have their own ways of describing. And, and they're not going to necessarily be as disciplined in how they describe. And they'll they'll say things that maybe are a little bit cringeworthy, to be, to be fair, <laughs> um, that the client is like, you know, a little dismayed because it was described a certain way that, is not the way they want it described, that they would prefer it not to be described. But 
you know, you, you cannot force the opinion leaders to say, you know, to say what they're, what you want them to say, because that's not how this works. So, you know, it comes down to relationships and obviously you you try to work with the, the thought leaders, but in the, at the end of the day, they, they say what they say and it sticks. And that's where it becomes a little complicated when it gets outside to the external world, you work with what you have. Okay, so now we've got a lexicon in place mm-hmm. and some messaging around what the science is about, what the product can do, and so on, and many different audiences. So that brings up the idea of a tiered messaging platform. Can you describe what that looks like and maybe give an example? Yes. Yeah, so I, I think that this idea of a tiered messaging platform has to take into account who's your target audience. And there's generally many, as we've discussed. It could be investors. It could be opinion leaders. It could be your investigators that are working on the drug or the or the, in the clinical study. Uh, it could be medical affairs. It could be physicians, um, patients. So each of those audiences needs to have the message is delivered in a way that that they can they can appreciate that resonates that delivers what not only what the company wants but what what people need to know and hear to make wise decisions informed decisions so uh, a tool that's often used to get there is a messaging map and the messaging map for those who have worked on those they're, they're somewhat flexible but they generally they generally are headed with a, you know, by a communications objective. And you try to march through not each audience one at a time and try and understand what needs to be communicated. And some of the elements of that uh, are understanding what is the unmet need. Is there a problem that needs to be solved? And then how is, how does this product or, or, or whether it's a drug or device or diagnostic test, how does it solve that problem? Or how can it begin to address that problem? And feeding into this message map, hopefully, are key insights that you would understand about that audience. Those are insights that are generally gleaned from market research or from experience that are shared. And so that helps you to develop your, your, your strategy and from there, ladder it, it sort of cascades down into the actual messages and the claims that you want to be able to make, and some of the reasons to believe the supporting evidence for that. So you can kind of envision this thing as a giant matrix that that is a way to curate messages based on what behaviors are you trying to elicit for that audience at different stages along this adoption curve helping them understand what the unmet need is or helping them understand what what the potential results are from working with this product. It's an all-in exercise. It requires a lot of thinking. And it, as I said from the get-go, it's a a tool. It's a tool that helps to organize and and keep track of the kinds of messages you want. And then you take that information, of course, and you have to put, you have to layer um, not just a narrative over it, based on what who you're communicating and what channel you're using. But that's where you also start to apply things like a voice. Does the product, does the company have a voice? Not just sending out information, but a certain tone. Is that tone empathetic? Is that tone assertive? Is that tone empowering? And that's where branding sometimes comes in, oftentimes come in, comes in. You, you try to, to then bring in the personality 
of the product in the company and you want it to be consistent. So when we talk about layers, the messages are nothing more than that. When you deliver them, it's how you say it, not just what you say. And you've heard that euphemism before or that saying before. So that's kind of a, um, a pretty serious step in the process. And again, that's, that's something that we, we try to encourage, if not recommend to each client that we, we get an alignment on the messaging. We've talked about the lexicon being in alignment. The messaging has to be in alignment. Understanding where people are in the process of adoption, you know, because they may have a certain set of beliefs and you're trying to elicit ultimately an action or behavior. And you, you can't just change a belief system day one. You have to you have to build a message cascade or a narrative that that helps people move from one step to the next step. And so you know, I've always approached communications as, as a behavioral science. When you factor in that th- these are often life and death types of decisions, I mean, healthcare is not selling corn chips. It's, it's selling hopefully solutions for better life or extended life. So these are things that really require a lot of, a lot of strategic thinking. And, it, and it's less hit and miss when you start to build your messages in, in this way. So I hope I was able to answer that question. Yeah, you, you certainly did. I mean, I love a couple of things you said there about audience insights. I was going to ask, and then you gave the example that people have certain mindsets and beliefs that you need to address in a certain way. Uh, maybe they have experience with a prior type of treatment or something that didn't go well. And so anything that looks like that or feels like that isn't, might not be the way to go. And, um, yeah, correct. There's, it's, it's, and, we're dealing with human emotion. Uh-huh. Um, that's fa- that's that, that's the X factor that yeah. that messaging alone cannot simply override. And then voice, which is a topic I want to spend a whole episode on. Um, that is on my list of topics to cover because I think it's undervalued and maybe under under understood, if that's a word. Um, it is now. Yeah, it is now exactly. Yeah. It's part of it's part That's, of my lexicon. Exactly. I was going to say you beat me to the punch on that. <laughs> so, um, this is great. So, Bob, you've worked with some big companies in the past. I just curious, like what what do you find exciting about working in this world of the the smaller pioneer type organizations? Yeah. So, I have worked with a number of very large companies. And I enjoyed that experience, and I bring that experience to these companies I've now retuned my attention to. You know, one of the reasons I'm I'm so interested in these these pioneering entrepreneurial startup companies that are getting their first brand to market is there's just a difference in terms of the the level of passion that I that I personally experience when I walk into the room. I mean, the senior people from the company are there. Everyone's investment is easily felt and 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 I think the interest and in the and the passion is palpable. So when you see that and you feel that you begin drinking the Kool-Aid yourself in some respects. Again, we, we're there to be objective. Yet there's an energy that I've seen and I've felt and my colleagues feel when we we work with these companies that isn't often there or maybe there in an individual in some of these bigger companies, but it's a different feeling. It's a different approach. And I think there's more of an open-mindedness to taking certain smart calculated risks because they haven't been doing it the same way forever. 
They're not following a strict set of marching orders that came down from above. The decision makers are in the room. They are fully vested in in getting this product to market. And they want to do it right. And they want to do it ethically. And they want to do it uh, in a way that's different. They want to stand out. So they need to make their mark on the industry. That's why a lot of these company CEOs in the C-suite, they came from, from big pharma. They came from big biotech. They came from the, the big companies. And their interest is in not only seeing themselves become more successful by bringing something to market, but but they're, they've maybe gotten a little bored, quite honestly, if I can speak on their behalf. There's a, there's a little bit of, we've done this so many times, we need something new, we want something different. So it's it's a reawakening and they just feel it just feels fresher to me um yeah and of one and, and there's probably um you just reminded me and i'm guessing it's the same for them have you heard this or read this thing by david brooks about the second mountain i have not tell me about it so david brooks the new york times columnist wrote a column a while back and he's talking about how as we move through our careers, the first mountain is about your career, like getting a job and obviously making enough money to raise a family and all that. But at some point, you, you've you done all that and you're fairly secure and now you want to make an impact. Mm-hmm. And maybe, whether that's you know doing something that's just more novel where you can feel your own impact more, but also uh, leave sort of a legacy of doing something different. And it seems like you and all these folks who are starting new companies, that's a little bit of what's going on there. Yeah, that's great. I mean, it's it's true. There's a little bit of a Stephen Covey kind of a feeling of, of of aspiring to someplace more purposeful, and I think that is again what I what I sense is these companies have a you have a different sense of purpose because they seem more focused. A lot of times, I'm finding that somebody in the higher echelon of these companies has been impacted by the very diseases or conditions that they're trying to treat or possibly move toward a cure. So there's that level of, of investment. And, you know, when you get to a certain point in your career, as you're, as you're saying, you're searching for a, a deeper meaning, a higher purpose. And not to get overly spiritual about this, yeah. but that, that's what brands are trying to do. Real brands give you that sense of purpose. Uh, not They're not just there to, to deliver a solution to a problem and and there's lots of options for in, in terms of solutions but people gravitate towards things that they feel most confident and comfortable with and, and, and what they trust and who they trust and who's behind it and that's where the branding becomes an important thing and so we try to build brands with these companies that that express that sense of purpose and that comes off not just again as with the product itself, that's sort of step one, but how you talk about it and and that's where tonality comes in and that's where the messaging is important and, and how you work with people. So these brands, they, they enter into a dialogue. It's, it's no longer shout messages at people and hope they hear it and they, they subscribe to the, w- the way you want them to think. That is old school. It probably never worked that well, and it certainly doesn't work in this day and age. So the idea that people would see in a brand not only a possible solution, but uh, messages and ideas and feelings that resonate, that, that, that are, give them a sense of, sh- of a shared value. So... That, as you can imagine, is where the psychology of communication comes in. 
and where companies oftentimes need help because these companies are, are generally started by people very smart people, much smarter than myself, but they're engineers, they're physicians, they're scientists. Sometimes, you know, later on the marketers come in, but until such time, they generally lack sort of the, the emotion of how to tell the story is not there. And that's where agencies and, and consultancies who work in communications and marketing can help. It's really kind of a, a, an interesting journey. For these companies yeah. and they're and they're fascinated by it actually even you know because they're they spend all their time thinking about that science and thinking about the product that when you come in with what we can you know affectionately consider the squishier stuff the branding and the tonality um they're fascinated because they and then they begin to really contribute and then they take ownership and then it becomes theirs and then you know you've you've been successful because when they when they take it on as their message and it's embodied in the products and the brands and what they're talking about, then you know you've you've actually done some good. Nice. All right, this has been fantastic. I will put certainly a link to your LinkedIn profile in the show notes and a link to Fresh Blood Group. Is there anywhere else that? We want to point people to to learn more about what you're doing. Uh, that's great. I think that's a great start. Um, LinkedIn is perfect. Maybe um, possibly Twitter. And I'll okay. to, I, can yeah. get you, I can get you that information. Or, or yeah, send me Twitter and all, yeah, all that. But and, I think uh, yeah, those are great places to start. I, I really have enjoyed this conversation. I, you know, I hope that it was helpful. Oh, absolutely. I really enjoyed it. I, I have no doubt the people on the other end of this who are listening are going to enjoy it as well. That's awesome. So, yeah. Bob Finkel, thanks for taking the time to chat with me today. Chris, thank you. I really appreciate it and have a great afternoon. All right, you too. Okay. All right. I really enjoyed talking to Bob and I have no doubt that the advice he shared with us would be useful. Uh, message discipline is hard anywhere, um, particularly I'm sure among enthusiastic new startup founders. As promised, so first of all, thank you all for sticking around to the end. And if you're still here to listen to how my goals are going, you are the best listeners ever. So at the beginning of the year, I set three goals that I shared on the podcast. And one of the things I think is important when you set goals, and I have found this to be very true, is sharing them makes them much more likely to be achieved. And I'm not the first person to discover that, but I am certainly a believer so the three goals I had were, one, I had a monthly revenue goal for my business. And the good news is I'm on track for that. The second goal I had was a swimming goal that I've had for quite a long time. I've been working on it for about four years. Last week, I made my possibly final attempt for the year at that goal, and I missed it by a very small amount. So my previous best time in a 200-yard breaststroke was three minutes, eight seconds, and something. And that was true until March. And in fact, in March, I swam three minutes, nine seconds. And last week, I went three minutes, one second, point seven, I believe. So I made substantial progress toward that goal, even though I didn't quite make it. I think I know why I didn't quite make it, because I feel like I had the potential to do it, but I made a couple errors in the race. 
Nevertheless, the, the real lesson there is that sharing it with you all made a huge difference because every day I practiced between January and last week, I was thinking, I'm going to have to tell you all whether I made it or not. And actually, when I went into the race, I was pretty confident I was going to make it. But nevertheless, I didn't. And um, the good news is I get to keep practicing. I thought I would be sort of done with this project by now, but um, I can't let it go. And the bad news is I don't know if I'll get another opportunity in this calendar year. The meet last week is kind of like the Super Bowl of Masters Swimming, and there'll be other Masters meets, but not in the right format until January. So I'm looking for opportunities, but that's where that is. And then finally, this is kind of exciting. I told you I was making a documentary film about recreational summer swimming, competitive summer swimming here in Contra Costa County, where I live in California. There's nothing else like it. And I am making a ton of progress on that based on networking and skill development and so on. So that's moving along nicely. Now, if you're still here, I really appreciate you sticking around to listening to my uh, personal goals and struggles. And if that can be helpful to you, I hope it is. Like I said, sharing those things makes a huge difference. And it's uh, made a huge difference in my progress on all three of those this year. So thank you for, for that. If you like the podcast, please tell a couple of your friends. I posted an article on LinkedIn last week. That is the most effective way to grow your podcast is to tell other people about it. And then I will be back in a couple weeks with another episode very likely to be relevant to biotech startups and everyone else. All right. Bye-bye.